You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Once again, it's not James here today. It's David Lammy here, back to cover James while he's off on his holidays. He'll be back with you next week, but today we've got something really, really special for you. Our guest this week is a true legend of cinema, director of such films as She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Clockers, and so many more. I'm of course talking about the great Spike Lee. Spike's got a new film out. It's called Black Klansman. It's out now, so you've got to catch it. But I've got a feeling that we're not just going to talk about movies today. I think things might get a little political. Today, we're going to talk about Spike, his life, what he's been up to. And we're also going to talk about Black Klansman, his new film, which is incredible. But we will get to that. Hi, Spike. I do, and thank you. I'm glad you think it's incredible. It is incredible. And I cried and laughed and all sorts. But we'll Hopefully, the tears came at the end. The tears came at the end. They came at well, the end. Well, that's good. But I'm not going to give it away. You, <laughs> you were laughing at the end. And I'm, I'm stepping out. I'm leaving. <laughs> then you have to interview yourself for no, 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, you know, Spike, over so many years, so many films that really touch and reach you. I, how do you do it? How do you just keep going? Well, I've been blessed being able to do what I love. Not many people have that blessing. A lot of people go to their grave, haven't worked at a job they hate all their life. Mm. So that timing, talent, hard work, support, those are winning ingredients. When I look back uh, over the life story and your history, I'm reminded that perhaps your parents also did things that they love. Your father was a jazz musician. Still is. Still is. Yes. Your mother was a teacher. She taught black literature. There was a vocation there. Well, Do you think they gave that to you? Oh, yes. Uh, not just me, my siblings too. And they all work, still work, you know, with me, uh, Right now, we just finished the second season. She's going to have it where my sister, Joie, plays Nola's mother. She also wrote an episode. My brother, Sankey, wrote an episode. They did the same thing for season one. And we just grew up in a very artistic household where the arts was encouraged. Not that it could be a career, but just, you know, my parents really want to have a, you know, the Nola arts. And then if we want to pursue that, fine. But we, we would, you know, nobody was pushed in any direction. And you credit your mother with introducing you to the film. She would take you to the movies. Yeah, my mother would take me to movies. My father hated movies. <laughs> but he loved sports. My love of sports came from my father. And uh, I was talking to Martin Scorsese the other day because he, he just, he loved, he called me and told me he loved the Black Klansman. And every time I speak to him, I remind him. <laughs> every time I speak to Martin, I remind him, you know what? My mother took me to see Mean Street when I was a little kid. <laughs> He's like, why did she do that? <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, my mother was a cinephile. How old were you when she was taking you to see Mean Streets and films like that? Well, what year did Mean Streets come out? 73, I was born in 57. I was in high school. Yeah. I think sophomore year in high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. 
But even when mother was taking the movies, I still at that point not decide I want to be a filmmaker. I just, you know, I just love. I was my mother's date. She loved films, so you know she would. She didn't want to go alone, so I'm, I'm the eldest, so I would go. So you're a teenager. You're being exposed to sides of America, sides of imagination that otherwise you might not have had access to. You were in Brooklyn at this point, right? I mean, there's a there's a bunch of movie theaters in, in New York City, so yeah. anybody might go to movies. So you have access to go to movie theaters. But I'm I suppose I'm I'm thinking. We use the word access. I'm though. thinking back to the New York that I would visit sometimes to see family uh, back in the eighties for me. And the neighborhoods I was going to, it, it's not always the case that you even had the money to, to get to the cinema. No. Nope. Black folks going to movies. Okay. Damn money for movies. Come on. <laughs> Shaft. Who do you think was going to those black exploitation films? The wrong white folks? Yeah. Black people. Black people. We always got money to go to movies. I wonder if it, maybe it was the immigrant experience. Because West Indians went to movies too. <laughs> they <laughs> were busy cleaning and, and, and washing. My brother, and doing my jobs brother, and, believe yeah. me, believe me. Your people that came from the islands, Jamaica, Trinidad, they were all over wherever, <laughs> they went to the movies in New York City. They had money. They went to Apollo. You had one of them actually in the film Black Klansman, Harry Belafonte. Yes. Who was originally from Jamaica, who did a Giant. wonderful. Yes, at the end, uh, sort of unexpected. Well, you jump on, you jump ahead, though. Yeah, I am, I am. Okay, so let's... freedom fighter, and is that why you cast him? Well, Mr. Belafonte, Mr. B, as everybody calls him, we've had a running joke for many years. Every time you see me, we say, "Can Ozzy Davis just sit on one film so I can get in?" <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it just happened with timing that this was the first time we worked together. Tell me about in life in Brooklyn for you. Go see Brooklyn. That's semi-autobiographical of, of the Lee family growing up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, late 60s, early 70s. Was this a New York, like the New York we saw in Do the Right Thing? I mean, it's a whole different story. I mean, Do the Right Thing is not a family film. It was in my house, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, I've done, I'll cry. I mean, I've done a lot of films. I call them the Chronicles of Brooklyn. So Do the Right Thing took place in Bed-Stuy, Do or Die, uh, Crookens in Fort Greene, where he grew up. So uh, there's different aspects of, uh, you know, Brooklyn. You were lucky enough to go to Morehouse. Was that a family tradition? You were going back to Atlanta? Well, I was born in Atlanta, and my grandmother lived in Atlanta. So that era, if you were black and you lived in Detroit, Boston, Philly, D.C., New York, and you had grandparents down south, your parents... Packed your bags and shipped your ass down south <laughs> so you get a break. <laughs> so our summers, me and my siblings and I, we spent our summers between Snow, Snow Hill, Alabama, which is my father's mother, and Atlanta, Georgia, which is my mother's parents. So we spent the summer between those two places. My father went to Morehouse where when he was a freshman, Dr. Martin Luther King was a senior. And Martin Luther King the third in our classmates. Mm. Class 79 And my grandfather went to Morehouse And my grandmother went to Spelman And my mother went to Spelman So these are historic black schools in Atlanta, Georgia They're across streets from each other For a British audience where there are no Colleges of that kind What kind of education was that? Uh, presumably a seminal age You, you were It's a fine uh, a, a very a great education I mean the reason why Black schools were formed Because 
We couldn't get into white schools. The reason why a lot of black business were formed because we couldn't go downtown and shop mm-hmm. places. So segregation really built, you know, black foundations. It's not just Morehouse. Got Morehouse, Howard, Spelman, Howard, Hampton. You know, it's a tradition of uh, black schools. And what I found is that it wasn't just your classmates, your professors, your teachers were black. And they really, really, really mm-hmm. pushed you. Whereas if you went to big white college or university, you know, you just look like you're just there because if they don't have you, they're not going to get the money from the government, that type of thing. You've talked certainly in the past about not being a straight A student. Right. I think there's a particular professor, it may be later when you go to NYU film school that... That, that was in film school. That was at Morehouse. A film teacher... His name is Dr. Herb Eichel, Professor Herb Eichelberg. He's still teaching there. So Morehouse didn't have a film major. So I took my major was across the street at Clark College, was mass communications, which was TV, radio, film, and journalism. So that was my major. And that's where, that's where it started, really. And you knew at that point that film was what was going to... Well, I didn't know at that point, but I knew that I had to take a major. Because I exhausted all my electives <laughs> my freshman and sophomore year. Right. So I took, uh, I thought it'd be interesting. You know, I wasn't going to med school. I wasn't going to, <laughs> I wasn't going to go to law school. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't want any nine to five job. And you were clear about that. You weren't going to do nine to five. Oh, I wasn't doing that. No way. And your first breakout film? The first film I did was called The Answer. And why you graduated film school is a three-year program. The first film I did was the answer was the plot is a young African-American writer-director is hired by a big Hollywood studio to do a remake of Bird for Nation. That's right. That's my first year. But the question was my breakout film, and that was Joe's Best Life Barbershop, which is my thesis film, which won the Student Academy Award. And once you won that award, you were off? No. I finished at 82 won the Student Academy Award and thought that because I had the Student Academy Award that students would call me, my phone would be ringing off the hook. <laughs> and it didn't ring. <laughs> it rang from the phone company paying the motherfucking <laughs> bill. <laughs> and Con Edison paid, paid, paid a, a little electricity <laughs> and, and Brooklyn Gas paid the gas. So I struggled and uh, so I got the money together the summer 1985, the dude, she's going to have it. We shot it in 12 days, two six-day weeks, July 1st to July 14th, 1985. Budget was, total budget was $175,000. We submitted to a San Francisco festival, got in, submitted to Cannes, won the pre Janice, and then the Island Pictures picked it up. So I finished 82 and she's happy to come out to 86. This is, so this is a few years. Yeah. Three, four year gap. And that's why I tell my students in NYU, when I'm a tenured professor to graduate film school, there, there's no such thing as overnight success. Mm. And how do they, what do you say to them in terms of getting through the hard times? Well, I found, I always try to tell my students that there's no one way to do anything. And what ha- works for me might not happen, might not work for you. And, when people, you know, when the students ask me or journalists like yourself, you know, what gets you through the hard times, I would say 
because you've had a calling. Like this is what you want to do. This is what you feel you put here on earth to do. And it's been my experience. The people that had that call are the ones that, that get over those hurdles. And if people aren't able to leap those hurdles like Edwin Moses, another Warhouse man, <laughs> they stumble. Yeah. Because they're doing it for some other reason. Fame, yeah. money, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So she's got to have it. Then you've got, in that period at least, that spoke to me, because I'm thinking of the films that I saw, Jungle Fever, Do the Right Thing. After she'd have it with school days. School days! After school days, oh. Do the Right Thing. The Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Crooklyn. It was a quick succession. Yeah, we were knocking them out yeah. one a year. How did you do that, though? How did a, how, was it because you were an independent filmmaker? You were able, I mean, no, these those were not, films some of those do, were do budgets, her. big budgets. The only independent film of the ones I mentioned was She's a Habit. School Days with Columbia, Do Right Things Universal, Mobilis Universal, Jungle People was Universal. You are seen as a filmmaker who can flip between being independent and Hollywood. Would that be fair or? Yes. Have, yes. Have one Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> One Jordan sneak is in the independent world, and the other <laughs> Jordan is in uh, the studio system. And equal- they have no problems going back and forth. You know, you got to get your films made and get it done wherever you get it done. Uh, and presumably, sometimes you are making films that are other people's films. You've been asked, you've been requested. I mean, obviously, the film speaks to you. Uh, and storytelling. I mean, there have yeah. been stuff where I had not originated the, yeah. the project. Latest example is Black Klansman. The last time I spoke to you or interviewed you, it was maybe a year into the presidency of Barack Obama. And I remember you said to me at the time that you were not keen, cool, at all sure about this kind of post-racial America. How? And I didn't believe. The minute I heard that term, I said, this is some bullshit. (laughs) And history has proven me correct. If you look at what we've been dealing with the last 18 months in the White House, Agent Orange got that moniker from a Buster Rhymes. He, he came with that. When you look back on Obama's period, how do you feel about it? In retrospect, I think that we were in such a euphoric state for eight years, two terms, and we forgot about you can only run for two terms. And weren't really prepared for uh, the onslaught that would come from the Republicans for that election at the heat. But there was quite a lot of resistance while he was in office. Uh, oh, yeah, the but they couldn't do nothing about it. So they had to wait till he was out. And they were more prepared. I think they were more prepared to work harder than the Democrats. And your your take on life today, it seems to me that many of the life films... Where? In America. In America. Yeah. It feels to me like many of the films that you've made in the past resonate today, uh, are powerful today. Mm-hmm. When I think of the Black Lives Matter campaign, when I think of the persistent rhetoric around race and privilege and white supremacy, so much that you have... Yeah, I've, I've had the crystal ball a couple of films. Where we were talking, I mean, go back and do the right thing. I wrote that script in 88. I'm talking about gentrification in 88. Yeah. I'm talking about global warming in 88. <laughs> you know, so. 
it was very frightening to me to see the, the murder of Eric Gardner by the NYPD strangled to death yeah. in Staten Island. I mean, it looked like the same thing happened to Ray Raheem. In fact, so much that I called my longtime editor, Barry Brown, who edited Do the Right Thing, where we intercut the footage between the movie strangulation of Ray Raheem with the real-life strangulation of Eric Gardner. Where's the hope? Are we going backwards? We're going backwards, but uh, we got to keep fighting. That's never stopped. The struggle is never going to end. So got to keep, keep in there. And the contribution of the arts to that struggle, more important than ever. Yes, but I've always felt that the best music movies have always come at a time when, you know, when they're... <laughs> yeah, strife. Yeah. When, when, when it's just going crazy and artists have to, uh, whether it be a song, a novel, a play, a movie, artists hold up the mirror and, like, to what's going on and say, WTF, civil rights... The great songs, the Curtis Mayfield World Winner, uh, the the protest songs of Vietnam, stuff that comes out of you know, Black Struggle, all that stuff. You know, artists, great artists have uh, contributed to it, and we lost one yesterday. Read the Franklin. Oh yeah, big blow. Yeah, huge. I remember her at the inauguration. It was. Do we there? Yeah, it was incredible. That, it was so cold that day. It was so cold. <laughs> I, I, and then you had to walk. You had to walk right up the mall. Oh, it oh. was cold. Uh, for, there were lots of, what I remember is lots of African-American women wearing furs, uh, furs yeah. <laughs> hats, gloves, uh, layers. And I remember when Aretha came on, it was like she'd walked out the crowd. because She was like the many African-American women could have been my mother. <laughs> And then she opened up, and there's a line in that piece, let freedom ring or let freedom reign, mm-hmm. and just tears came rolling down the eyes. The Queen of Soul. You know, she sang the end credit songs. Aretha sang the end credit song for Malcolm X, the classic Donna Hathaway song, Someday We'll All Be Free. She mm. sang that. Someday. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm looking at my clock. <laughs> <laughs> Not while we're alive, but... Uh, oh, when's this day coming? <laughs> when's this day coming? Uh, another artist that you um, have responded to, liked, think his music is in the Black Klansman, is Prince. Yes. Uh, who we also lost uh, a short while ago. Right. Uh, a wonderful, eclectic artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get this piece... A formerly unpublished piece, I think, that... that, that Troy Carr is a very good friend of mine. He's an advisor to the Prince Estate. And I knew I needed a, a great song, a spiritual song, though. They would somewhat, I hate this word, heal, but I think we would need, I thought we need, I knew we needed it at the end of this film, mm. which is follows uh, the coda mm. of Charlottesville. And Troy flew to New York. I showed him the film. He was knocked out. He said, no, I have the song. And uh, one of the first jobs the state had to do was to, had to archive all his music in Paisley Park. I mean, the man was in the studio every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> it was like a catalog that went on forever. And yeah. out of 10,000 cassettes, this one cassette turned up from 1983 where it's just him on piano and singing. 
And on this cassette, we found, uh, Troy found the song, The Negro Spiritual, Mary Don't You Weep. Mm. And he played it for me. And right there, I knew Prince wanted me to have this. <laughs> Wonderful. My, my brother, there's no Wonderful. way in, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm having that. Yeah. There's no way in the world, where, <laughs> out of 10,000 cassettes, all of a sudden this song pops up. Yeah. Yeah. No one's ever heard it before. Yeah. I said, my brother Prince wanted the world to have this in this in this film for the end credits. And it's amazing. It was wonderful. And it was one of those films, you know, you're there at the beginning and you're the last one out of the, the theatre. It, it, it was so moving. More from Spike in just a moment. But here's Russell Kane to tell you more about his show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here. And I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe. Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Cheers, Russell. Now back to Spike Lee. Tell me how this film came about. Jordan Peele called me out of the blue. He said, you know, he said, I got something. How you doing? You know, did the whole, what up, what up, what up? <laughs> got that out of the way. <laughs> I thought that's something uh, he might want to be interested in. So he pitched it to me. Six words. Black man infiltrates KKK. Which is like the best pitch. I mean. That, that is high concept. Yeah. <laughs> high concept. You can't get higher than yeah. that. And uh, my first reaction was, is this true? He said, yes. And I also same time, I thought about the the very funny, famous skit, you know, Dave Chappelle. Yes, that's right. And uh, he said, no, it's, it's true. Told me about Ron Stallworth. Yeah. Sent me the book. And uh, that was it. And the story is basically Ron Stallworth, his infiltration into uh, the Ku Klux Klan once he joins Colorado the, Springs. the Colorado Springs. He was also the department. first black police officer in Colorado Springs, too. He's still with us? Yeah, he's still with us. He's alive. He's been doing interviews. And was he on set at all? He didn't come to set. He, just, he was just there for the read-through. Right. And, and pre-production where he spent a lot of time with John David Washington. John David Washington, who I had never seen before, but is Denzel's son, who was incredible in this yes. film. Mm-hmm. I knew he could do and he it. He had an amazing afro. I mean, the most amazing afro. An afro. I now want an afro. <laughs> Tell me about that casting. He uh, he didn't have to audition. He didn't have to read for it. Put himself on tape. I just said, I offered him the part. The film clearly is not just any old film. It's a film at this time. Um, it's timing. It's very apropos now, right? And there's urgency because of that. And you were aware of that while you were filming it? I mean, sometimes oh, I projects can start a year in advance. I was aware of that because this guy had been in the White House already, and I saw what the destruction he was doing. So Kevin Wilmot and I, co-writer, we wanted this film to, even though it's a period piece, to comment on the contemporary world we live in today. The Make America Great Again. Yeah, but all those statements are old. America First was a slogan that the, the Klan had in the 1920s, you know, against immigrants. So all this stuff, all this hate's been recycled and repackaged. And there was a sensibility to this film, um, uh, a take on history, obviously references to 
uh, cinematic black, history black with, with, uh, films. with uh, Gone with the Wind and uh, Birds, of Birds of a Nation. When you make a film like this, do you have a sense that this we're, we're working with something great, this is going to be, I mean, you know, or do you just... You know, no, I mean, I can only talk for myself. You, you hope that the film's going to turn out well. You do, you do your best you can, and that's all you can do. You know, I never went into any film, you know, like, wow, oh, anything, no preconceptions. Let's all work hard, do the best we can do, and make the best film possible in front of behind the camera. The film ends with referencing to Charlotte's film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for a British audience, brings back in very real time the loss of life, the consequence of far-right rhetoric... That can get lost because we're living in a period of daily tweets and daily news and salaciousness. The very, very seriousness of lives lost mm-hmm. and where that KKK agenda ends can get lost. Uh, I was in Marlins Vineyard. It was an island off the coast of Massachusetts. We have a summer home. It was August 12th. A year and five days ago. Yeah. I was in Marlins Vineyard. Watched CNN and I saw this despicable homemade apple pie act of American terrorism with the murder of Heather Hale. And I knew how to end it. That was not the scripted ending. So we didn't start shooting until September. So we had to end it. But it wasn't a lock because I still. Thought I needed to get the blessing from Susan Bro, who was a mother of Heather, who lost her daughter, and uh, mm. got Mrs. Bro's number, and as best as I could, try to give my condolences. I yeah. mean, what 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 can anyone say to any mother yeah. who loses their daughter? But but like that. Mm. Did the best I could and explained her why why I called her and uh, she's you know we talked and said she's been a fan of my work and so she uh, you know gave me the blessing to use that shot of the car that uh, murder weapon that car speeding down a crowded street. It ends up being a film of a lot of light and shade. It is an entertaining film, mm-hmm. um, despite the huge emotional punch at the end. Can I just Dakota. say... Dakota. I think it's a, an amazing achievement. Thank I really, you. really, Thank you. I appreciate really that. Spike enjoyed Now, we go way back, film. man. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I, mean, I wanted to say that. No, no, I appreciate it. You know, here's the thing, though, is I, you know, I alluded to it earlier, but as a filmmaker, I, I try to tell my students... This shit is not easy. It's hard to make a hard, it's hard work to do a horrible film. <laughs> it is hard work to do a horrible film, let alone a good film. So every film, I know I might be repeating myself, do the best you can. Roll the dice, blow on them. And just hope it doesn't come out snake guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you can do. I I can't. Because there's so many things factor in that you have no control 
your marketing? Is there going to be, is there a, a huge snowstorm when your film opens? I mean, it goes, there's just so many intangibles. The right time. I mean, one of the, I'll tell you this, one of the best things about Black Klansmen, a lot of people, because of this film, they've gone back to films, or they've gone back to my body work to see films they hadn't seen. Twins Dower, Bamboozles, Summer Sam, Amir, and they're like, yeah, they're yeah. writing about these films yeah, yeah. like they're seeing it the first time. Yeah. So, those films, just like Twins Dower, it came and went. That's considered the best film about 9-11 ever, you know. But it wasn't like that when the shit came out, though. Yeah. So, that's been very good. There's people have been have gone back and reinduced. Maybe never saw, maybe only saw it one time and just like shrugged it off. But the, the film, the, the film's getting recognition that they didn't get on the release. And a new generation of people are coming to True. your work, um, right. which is hugely important. And mm-hmm. look, True. I, I remember when you received um, the Oscar for your honorary work, yeah, lifetime of achievement. And much more to come, much more to come. But I think it was Denzel Washington talked also it was Denzel. about the amount of people. In front and behind the camera. In front and, and behind the camera. And you know what he said? He said, don't get mad, Tyler Perry. <laughs> <laughs> My brother, Tyler Perry. But that yeah. was obviously hugely important to you. What's to, that? To bring people on and bring no, that was that was the, that was from the get-go. Because the thing was is that the unions weren't letting in black people. And so I had to fight with the unions, with the Teamsters, to get people in. The biggest fight I had was with the Teamsters. Because I told them, look, we got to have some black people driving these trucks at Malcolm X. And they said, we don't have no Teamsters, black Teamsters. I said, yes, then you know what then? Well, then the fruit of Islam will be driving the trucks. <laughs> I told them that. This is interesting. And then the next day, they, they hocus pocus, miraculously found some black teamsters. This is interesting. But I had to do that. This is like a, this is a, if you like, a, a deal that's sewn up from the left because this is the unions saying these are our people, those aren't our people. I know. I, I mean, yeah. it's ironic because uh, the unions for being for people, but in the film industry, they, they really, I mean, the teamsters, uh, the local units with the, I mean, the other units, the, the yeah. wardrobe, hair, makeup, camera. They weren't, back in the day, they weren't too inviting to people of color. I mean, it's, you go on sets, there'd be no black people there. Maybe they wanted to have some black PAs when they're shooting Harlem or the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Lily White. And they're okay with it. Spike, there's one other relationship in this film that really spoke to me and I think might resonate with a British audience. And that is the relationship that has long existed in the United States between African-Americans and the Jewish community, which is a subtext in this film. The Jewish community and African-Americans worked closely together on civil rights and fighting for civil rights. It's a story in South Africa with the ANC and I'm afraid anti-Semitism is a big discussion point in our own country. As a New Yorker who's very aware of that symbiotic relationship that comes up in this film, can you just say something about 
how important that was. Kevin Wilmer and I, uh, we just knew that there was, we could mine a lot of stuff out of making Ron Stowers' partner Jewish. So he's he's faking to be a Klan sympathizer. And he's faking that he's not Jewish. So he was code-switching twice. <laughs> so, but there's a lot of code-switching because uh, Ron Stoworth, he's faking the clan who's on the phone with. <laughs> and then this lady who he's trying to talk to. That's right. Who's calls cops pigs. That ain't going to work for her either. So... That's interesting thing that, that that attracted me is that you have these people who are they're code switching, you know. There's something, and then there's something they're else. not. There's someone else. So it's kind of playful, you know. But it's real that. life, I guess. I mean, we, we oh yeah, we all I mean, do that. I mean, it's, you know? it's I mean, one of the Nick the terrorist characters says uh, Jews Jews change names all the time. They kill Christ. I mean, that <laughs> that was a scene. Yeah, you know, people do that. I thought, it, I mean, it was wonderful because they end up in a uh, in, in quite an important relationship, and it just occurred to me. Yeah, but another thing, though, we didn't want this to be a typical buddy cop film, no, too. So that's so that's yeah. something we had to really be on look up, look out for. Because I know that every year they had this thing. I forgot they call it. They have in Las Vegas a convention for the theater owners, and there was a short, short clip was shown. It wasn't even a trailer. And the next day, Hollow Reporter or Deadline, one of those industry mags said, Spike Lee's new buddy cop film. And I, I, I got, I got on Instagram. It so wasn't that. I got Instagram right away and tried to dead that narrative. It was not that. I don't know how he got to that, but that was not the film I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been in, this country many, many times. Oh, London? Yeah. I mean, England? Yeah, yeah. I've been coming here since 84. I was coming here when Brixton was black. <laughs> <laughs> you need to come down to Tottenham. <laughs> well, 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 look, here's the thing, though. Gentrification is worldwide. Yeah. yeah. Not just in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Not just in the People's Republic of Brooklyn. Uh, worldwide. Uh, Brixton, I used to have fun in Brixton. Poorer people get pushed out, out, out. That's further, global. Further out. But global. What, but, Spike, you have got one considerable flaw. What's that? And the don't, f- what, don't tell my Arsenal. Yeah! <laughs> no, I'm going to the game tomorrow. We play Chelsea. What, what, why would you? Going with Clive Owen. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, we're going together. <laughs> How did you come to support that Terry very small North London team? Terry Henry. You can't blame me for that, though. Well, he's a great guy. I mean, I, that's how, that was my end. That was okay. my that was my end. Uh, the Arsenal. Okay, he's you know. and then we became <laughs> friends too. Come on, don't hate me for that, Terry Henry. So you will be there Saturday. We at White Hart Lane don't even. Refer. Who's your team? Spurs, the team of North London. The great team of North London. Aye. Um, then you woke we, up. We'll see this. We've got a new stadium. <laughs> We've got a new stadium coming. That's going to do it. You've got to come to a derby game between Arsenal and Spurs at some point in the future to see serious football and to see us whip your butt. But so derbies when uh, two teams two teams from London right. play each other. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. the derby. Right, yeah. So where is it this year? Is it, aren't no, it? we play. We will play once 
Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. it's home and home and away, right? Home and away, yeah, yeah. So we'll see where we get to. So what happened to England in the World Cup, though? Well, you know, next next question. <laughs> Spike, we're here to talk about Spike, Spike here to talk Spike, about Black Clans, or not? Not the the the, the, the England's performance in, the, in the, the previous World Cup. The expectations were low, and the boys done well. It was a young team. Yeah, I can't Spurs I, players. I, I, I can't way. talk. The United States even make it. So we even make the World Cup. Well, of course, but that's the United States. You still have. I mean, we've sent Wayne Rooney over to help you guys out. They ran him out of here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sort of age thing. Yeah. We all get old. I'm 61. 61. Born March 20th. First day of spring in 1957. But you you feel the same, right? You feel that's that you just give that off. Like don't crack. Or have you got? Like <laughs> <laughs> don't crack. We will end there, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank. You. I want. I just like to say this. I want to thank everyone who's supported my films in England, the country, England, the UK, London. Always have had a great time coming over here. Have never received anything but love and support. And thank you. Come out and see this film. Let's keep it going. Thank you, Spike. Thank you, my man. Thank you. All right. Great. Seriously animated about Arsenal, of all things. How can he support that poor North London team? But also the prescience of his work and its legacy and its importance at this time. And it was really interesting to hear how almost surprised he is that people are rediscovering his work and going back and finding it because of the politics of our time. Black Klansman's out now, so make sure you go and see it. And if you enjoyed this interview, you might want to check out a Carla's episode of Unfiltered. Here's a clip. Let's say we started a boarding school. Yeah. And we took kids from Hackney and Tottenham and Brixton, and we put them on a farm in Cambridge. Yeah. Right? Feeding shit to pigs, pardon my language, right? (laughs) For the whole years of secondary school. Yeah. Is anyone going to honestly tell me they think the outcomes would be identical to if they stayed in that environment or to take it even more extreme? Would anyone choose who has money to raise their child in a favela in Brazil? Mm. Would anyone make that choice? I've been to the favelas in Brazil. Some of my best friends live there. Mm. When people say your environment doesn't define you, I mean, I, 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 any right-wing version of Signaler who believes that, I publicly challenge them. Yes. I will, I'll, we can bet a sum of money. They can yeah. go and live for one year on Angeltown Estate in Brixton, right? Yeah. Or, or in East Glasgow, they can pick. And if at the end of that year, they can still say the society's meritocratic, that your environment doesn't define you, that whatever you, if they genuinely, and it has to be during a period of time that is crucial to their child's development. Sure. So let's say the last year of A-levels yeah. or last year of GCSEs, you have to go and live in that environment just for that period of time and see what it does to your personal perception, see what it does to your confidence. See what, none of that excuses the people that live there, but no, it's absurd to suggest that they have the same I see it with all my friends. Every boy I was friends with that got expelled from school at 13, without exception, went to prison. Every single one. And the the former head of the prison service, Martin Neri, he said the 13,000 kids we expel from school every year, we might as well give them a prison sentence then and there. So do go back and check that out, along with the rest of the back catalogue. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to Unfiltered. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you know someone who might like Unfiltered, do them a favour and introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.